the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. I want to thank James Blend. He's producer of today's program, Clark Hilton for Engineering. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Steve Wilkins. He's a PhD and the author of What's So Funny About God? A theological look at humor. He'll join us in the five o'clock hour. Taking a look at some of the news headlines, videos have emerged online today that purportedly show Iranian police and security forces firing live ammunition to disperse demonstrators protesting against the Islamic Republic after the country mistakenly downed a Ukrainian airline plane shortly after takeoff from Tehran. There was no immediate report in Iranian state-run media on the incident near Azadi, or Freedom Square in Tehran, but if true, could be seen as an act of defiance against President Trump, who warned the regime against the use of deadly force. Trump late Sunday tweeted in Farsi that a combination of protests and sanctions have choked off Iran and said Tehran will be forced to negotiate to the negotiation table. Tehran has experienced unrest after the country admitted it mistakenly fired a missile that brought down the Ukrainian airline flight out of the country's capital, killing all 176 on board. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi confirmed in an interview on Sunday that she and fellow Democrats will soon discuss sending articles of impeachment against President Trump to the Senate for a trial and defended her decision to wait weeks to do so. Despite criticism from both Republicans and some of her fellow Democrats, Pelosi said her strategy was sound. She called a resolution introduced by Republicans and supported by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell allowing for dismissal of the impeachment case if she failed to send the articles within 25 days a cover-up. Pelosi said she will talk to Democrats at the weekly caucus meeting tomorrow on how to proceed further. All eyes are on Britain's royal family. Okay, not all eyes. Some eyes are. I really am not that interested. But Queen Elizabeth II has a private meeting scheduled with Prince Charles, Prince William, and Prince Harry to discuss Harry and wife Meghan Markle's decision to step back from their royal duties. Last week, Markle and Prince Harry revealed that they would be stepping back as senior members of the royal family, would be splitting time between the United Kingdom and North America while working to become financially independent. Sources told People magazine that the Queen requested the high-level meeting to talk things through. Meghan, who is currently in Canada, reportedly uh, called in for the meeting. Some people are worried about whether or not they can pay the mortgage, how to send their kids through school. I guess, you know, when you're a royal and have lots of money, these are the kinds of issues that make headlines. Iran opens fire on demonstrators. Protesters chant, our enemy is right here. They lie to us that it's America. Hmm. No Senate Democrats support the measure praising the military for killing Soleimani. All GOP senators supported the same resolution about bin Laden during the Obama years. Well, Iran has admitted it unintentionally shot down the Ukrainian jetliner. More on that shortly. And Cory Booker has dropped out of the presidential race just three weeks away from Iowa. 
caucuses. Taiwan's president uh, reelected as has been reelected as voters uh, back the tough China stance and House Democrats are blocking a hazardous substance measure to protect unborn children. The Trump administration has rolled back the Obama era joint employer rule. An FBI director has apologized to the FISA court, not Carter Page, for warrant application abuses. Governor Greg Abbott says that the state will not accept new refugees there in Texas. And Virginia's gun proposal is putting concealed carry agreements with other states in jeopardy. Shocking number of young Americans say other countries are better than the United States, perhaps revealing their ignorance of what it's like in other countries. And on this day in history, 1794, President George Washington approves a measure adding two stars and two stripes to the American flag following the admission of Vermont and Kentucky to the Union. The number of stripes would be later reduced to the original 13. On this day in 1915, a magnitude 7 earthquake centered in Italy claims some 30,000 lives. And on this day in 1941, a new law goes into effect granting Puerto Ricans U.S. birthright citizenship. 2009, President-elect Barack Obama's nominee for Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton vows during her Senate confirmation hearing to revitalize the mission of diplomacy in U.S. foreign policy. Well, no snow is on the ground here in Portland, and residents shouldn't expect any flakes to fly during the day today. According to the National Weather Service, they predict the city will see plenty of rain and high temperatures in the upper 30s today. The snow level, 900 feet. No metro area schools are closed, though some school districts throughout the region have delayed the start of classes. Some buses ran on snow routes as well. Portland's next threat of wintry weather will appear overnight when snow levels will drop to 500 feet. Temperatures bottom out at 33 degrees. Less than a half inch of snow could accumulate. Snow showers are likely on Tuesday. Less than a half inch of accumulation is possible throughout the day. Snow apocalypse apparently will not be upon us, at least today or tomorrow. And a Portland family is mourning the loss of two children who were swept out to sea on Saturday afternoon on the Oregon coast. Our hearts, as you can imagine, could not be more broken as both children were loved beyond measure by our entire family and so many others, the family said in a statement today. Police say 47-year-old Jeremy Stiles was holding his two children, ages 7 and 4, when they were all swept into the ocean by a wave at Falcon Cove south of Arch Cape. According to family members, first responders said the father and children were on an off-beach trail when the wave came in. A police officer found Stiles struggling and helped get him out of the water. Then they saw the seven-year-old girl further out in the ocean. The officer went into the ocean, was able to bring the girl to shore, but she was taken to a local hospital and pronounced dead. Stiles was also taken to the hospital where the family said he is recovering from hypothermia. His condition is unknown. On Sunday, the U.S. Coast Guard permanently suspended a search for the four-year-old boy. The family released the following statement this afternoon. Over the weekend, members of our family, Jeremy Stiles, 47, Lola Stiles, 7, and William Stiles, 4, were involved in a tragic accident at Cannon Beach when a sneaker wave creeped up onto the beach trail they were walking on and pulled them out to sea. Lola was pronounced dead at the hospital. William's body has not yet been recovered, and Jeremy is recovering from hypothermia at Seaside Hospital. The Stiles family want to thank everyone for their thoughts and prayers, and especially the support of the first responders and Coast Guard during their horrific tragedy for the family. First responders have reported that they were on an off-beach trail, and when the waves came up and pulled them in. Our hearts, as you can imagine, cannot be more broken as both children were loved beyond measure by our entire family and so many others. 
There were extremely high tides, known as king tides, on the coast over the weekend. A high surf warning was in effect. The Coast Guard urges people to stay away from jetties and rocks. We mentioned that late last week. The Oregon coast can be beautiful. Storms can be alluring, but they can also be very, very dangerous. King tides, as KGW reported, are captivating to see. Many people flocked to the Oregon coast this weekend to check out the waves, which were expected to be the biggest of the season. Some waves were taller than 30 feet, but those powerful waves came uh, with added risk. Um, One incident happened at 4.30 p.m. on Saturday at Thor's Well in Yahats. Video shows the waves crashing into the rocks and making a giant splash. A man out on the rocks uh, took the brunt force of one of those waves. Fortunately, the man uh, was okay and not swept out to sea, which can so easily happen. So be careful. Know what's going on along the Oregon coast. If you and your family are visiting, it can be very, very dangerous. 15 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Steve Wilkins. He is a, uh, a philosophy professor and the author of What's So Funny About God? A Theological Look at Humor. He'll join us next hour. Well, Iran officials acknowledged on Saturday that they accidentally shot down a Ukrainian passenger plane that crashed earlier this week, killing all 176 people aboard. General Amir Ali Hazadaka something very like that, head of the Aerospace Division of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, told State TV that his unit accepts full responsibility for shooting down the aircraft minutes after it took off Wednesday from Tehran's International Airport. He said that when he learned about the downing of the plane, I wish I was dead. That's a quote. The aircraft, which was heading to Kiev, was shot down hours after Iran launched a ballistic missile attack on two military bases housing U.S. and coalition troops in Iraq. Those attacks were in retaliation for the killing of a Iranian General Qassam Soleimani in an American airstrike in Baghdad. No one was wounded in the attacks on those bases. Days later, U.S. military officials said they believed Iran had mistakenly shot down the plane using a surface-to-air missile. This conclusion was supported by videos and purportedly uh, shows a fast-moving light through the trees before a high fireball illuminates the landscape. Someone off camera says, in Farsi, the plane has caught fire. In the name of God, the compassionate and merciful, God help us, call the fire department. Um, the um, uh, general, the general Amir Ali, he told Iranian state media that Tehran had beefed up its air defenses and was at the highest level of readiness, fearing any U.S. retaliation to the missile attacks on its troops. He said the pilot and crew of the passenger plane had done nothing wrong and that the armed forces alone were responsible. An officer made the bad decision to open fire on the plane after mistaking it for a cruise missile, he went on to say. A sad day, Iran's foreign minister uh, Mohammed uh, Javid Zarif tweeted, human error at times of crisis caused by U.S. adventurism led to disaster. Our profound regrets, apologies and condolences to our people, to the families of all victims and to other affected nations. Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, also tweeted about human error causing the horrific crash, calling it a great tragedy and unforgivable mistake. He also wrote the Islamic Republic of Iran deeply regrets this disastrous mistake, but made no mention of the U.S. in either message. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, 
Khomeini expressed his deep sympathy to the families of the victims and called on the armed forces to pursue probable shortcomings and guilt in the painful incident. Ukraine's President Zelensky issued a statement saying the crash investigation should continue and the perpetrators should be brought to justice. He said Iran should compensate victims' families and he requested official apologies through diplomatic channels. The plane, which was bound for Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, had 167 passengers and nine crew members aboard. Those killed included 82 Iranians, 57 Canadians, and 11 Ukrainians, according to officials. Among the dead were a California doctoral student who was in an Iranian immigrant uh, to Canada, as well as her sister and mother, who were residents of Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada. On Friday, Canada's foreign minister had announced the launch of an international effort to press Iran for a thorough investigation into the cause of the crash. Iran's acknowledgement of responsibility was likely to renew questions of why authorities did not shut down the country's main international airport and its airspace after the ballistic missile attack when they feared U.S. reprisals. It also undermines the credibility of information provided by senior Iranian officials. As recently as Friday, Ali Abedaza, the head of the National Aviation Department, had told reporters with certainty that a missile had not caused the crash. The United States has promised it would take appropriate action following its determination that the aircraft was downed by an Iranian missile. In an unrelated story, although it relates to the airlines, when or if the Boeing 737 MAX returns to service, the company recommends fresh simulator training plus computer training for pilots. And Boeing papers, as they're being called, show that employees slid the 737 MAX problems past the FAA. These communications do not reflect the company we are and need to be, and they are completely unacceptable, Boeing wrote of those now-disclosed papers. Boeing is coming under more pressure following the release of damaging internal messages about safety and procedures involving the now-grounded 737 MAX jet. Employees knew about problems with flight simulators for the aircraft and apparently tried to hide them from federal regulators, according to documents released last Thursday. This airplane is designed by clowns, who in turn are supervised by monkeys, wrote one Boeing employee. In internal messages, employees also groused about Boeing's senior management, the company's selection of low-cost suppliers, wasting money, and the max. Boeing employees also talked about misleading regulators about problems with the simulators. In one exchange, an employee told a colleague they wouldn't let their family ride on a 737 MAX. Boeing said the statements raised questions about Boeing's interactions with the FAA and getting the simulators qualified, but said the company is confident that the machines work properly. Names of the employees who wrote the emails and text messages were redacted. The MAX has been grounded worldwide since March after two crashes that killed 346 people. Boeing is still working to update software and other systems on the plane to convince regulators to let it fly again. Well, the latest batch of internal Boeing documents were provided by the Federal Aviation Administration and Congress last month and released on Thursday to the public. The company said it was considering disciplinary action against some employees. In December, Boeing proactively brought these communications to the FAA's attention in furtherance of the company's commitment to transparency with our regulator and strong safety oversight of our industry, Boeing said in a statement. An FAA spokesman said the agency found no new safety risks that have already been identified as part of the FAA's review of changes that Boeing is making to the plane. The spokesman, Lynn Lunsford, said the simulator mentioned in the documents has been checked three times in the last six months. Any potential safety deficiencies identified in the documents have been addressed, he said in its statement. A lawmaker leading one of the congressional investigations into Boeing called them incredibly condemning. 
he used a different word. They paint a deeply disturbing picture of the lengths Boeing was apparently willing to go to in order to evade scrutiny from regulators, flight crews and the flying public, even as its own employees were sounding alarms internally. A quote from Representative Peter DeFazio, chairman of the House Transportation Committee. DeFazio and other critics have accused the company of putting profits over safety. We regret the content of these communications and apologize to the FAA, Congress, our airline customers, and to the flying public for them. We have made significant changes as a company to enhance our safety processes, organizations, and culture, Boeing said in a statement in response. The grounding of the MAX will cost the company billions in compensation to families of passengers killed in the crashes and airlines that canceled thousands of flights. Carriers that use the 737 MAX have taken it off schedules through the early months of 2020. Last month, the company ousted its CEO and decided to temporarily halt production of the plane in mid-January, a decision that is rippling out through its supplier network. Well, President Trump has called his military clash with Iran over a besieged U.S. embassy, the opposite of Benghazi. And people close to him say it's impossible to overstate how deeply Mr. Trump was influenced by the fatal 2012 terror attack on the U.S. facilities in Libya and by President Barack Obama's weak response. When Iran-backed forces attacked the U.S. embassy in Baghdad and set fires to the walls of the compound, Mr. Trump quickly ordered a contingent of Marines to defend the complex. Then he ordered a drone strike in Baghdad that killed Iranian Major General Qassam Soleimani, a designated terrorist believed to have plotted the embassy assault and to have been planning more attacks on Americans. You can't underestimate the impact that had on the president's decisions when he saw the burned out embassy in Baghdad. Mr. Christopher Ruddy, a longtime friend of the president, said, I think he was pretty shocked. Mr. Ruddy said the president has always considered the deaths of four Americans, including the ambassador to Libya, in an Islamist attack on a U.S. diplomatic post in Benghazi, a shameful mark on our country's standing in the world. In the wake of the U.S. clash with Iran, the Iranian government admitted its air defense forces shot down a Ukrainian passenger jet taking off from Tehran last week, killing all 176 people aboard. The revelation has led to anti-government street protests in Iran, and Mr. Trump warned Iranian leaders Sunday, do not kill your protesters. Thousands have already been killed or imprisoned by you, and the world is watching. More importantly, the U.S. is watching. Well, the latest internal threat to the Iranian regime has resulted at least in in part from Mr. Trump's confrontation of Iranian forces assaulting the U.S. embassy in Iraq around New Year's Day. At his first major campaign rally of the year last week in Toledo, Ohio, the president described his outrage at watching the Islamic extremists attacking the embassy in Baghdad, smashing windows and burning an outer reception area. I saw what was happening, Mr. Trump said, and that was going to be another Benghazi had they broken through the final panel of glass. Had they gotten through, we would have um, had uh, either eight or dead people or hundreds of hostages. That wasn't going to happen. And I called up our great generals. He said with satisfaction, we got there very quickly. We did it exactly the opposite of Benghazi where they got uh, there so late. 9-11-2012, during the thick of Mr. Obama's re-election campaign, terrorists from the Islamic group Ansar al-Sharia stormed two U.S. facilities in Benghazi. The rest uh, you would know. Well, then-Representative Mike Pompeo of Kansas issued a 48-page supplementary report with Representative Jim Jordan of uh, Ohio 
in 2016, calling Benghazi a tragic failure of leadership. They said the Obama administration was so blinded by politics and its desire to win an election, it disregarded a basic duty of government, tell the people the truth. And for those reasons, Benghazi is and always will be an American tragedy, end quote. The two men were also critical of Mrs. Clinton, who held the State Department post that Mike Pompeo now occupies. Secretary Clinton and the administration told one story privately that Benghazi was a terrorist attack and told another story publicly blaming a video-inspired protest, they wrote. Well, critics have accused Mr. Trump of overreacting against Iran to prevent another Benghazi in an election year. Trump's campaign communications director, Tim uh, Murtaugh, said the difference is that Mr. Trump took decisive action when our embassy was under assault. That didn't happen in Benghazi. So two views on what happened and why and the timing of it all. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Steve Wilkins, his book, What's So Funny About God? A Theological Look at Humor. That's coming up at about a quarter after the hour. Two Iranian women, Maryam Rostampour and Merzia Amazuri, or something very like that, have uh, pinned a column, uh, the headline of which read, Iran sentenced us to death. Here's how Iranians really view the regime. It was a rather interesting uh, look into the country. The two of them write that in 2009, the Iranian government arrested and imprisoned us and sentenced us to death by hanging because of our evangelical Christian faith. We recounted that experience in the book Captive in Iran. We have experienced firsthand the cruelty of the Iranian regime, including the intelligence officers and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps forces who are responsible for brutally torturing our best friend, a Kurdish activist, and her execution by hanging, among many other uh, many of their cru- other cruel actions. The Revolutionary Guard is notorious in Iran as a force behind all suppressions, arrests, tortures, and mass killings of many Iranians, including the most recent protests last November, in which well over a thousand and likely more were killed and many more were arrested. Also, the force is responsible for terrorist actions across the Middle East in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and beyond. For many Iranians, including us, it was a relief to hear that Major General Qassam Soleimani, the head of the Islamic Revolutionary, Revolutionary Guard Corps, elite Quds Force, was killed last week in a U.S.-led strike. Soleimani has blood on his hands of not only Iranians, but also U.S. service members, Iraqis, Afghanis, and Syrians. Most people in Iran were celebrating the death of a man who murdered innocent Iranians as recently as the November protests. Unlike th- what uh, was shown in the Western media, people inside Iran are sending out videos through social media that show they are privately dancing in their homes, celebrating the death of Suleimani. Some even bake and give each other cookies to show their happiness. In November, thousands of Iranians were brutally killed by the regime's agents, particularly by the Revolutionary Guard forces under the leadership of Suleimani. They go on to write this pair of Iranians. Many families lost their loved ones, including young children, during the suppression of the protests. Some could not even get the bodies of their children released or were forced to pay the price of the bullet, thousands of dollars, to get their bodies returned. Other families, including that of uh, another friend, were not even allowed to mourn or have a funeral for their children because the regime was afraid many Iranians would join and that would lead to another protest against the regime. If the people of Iran had the freedom to attend the funerals of those who were killed during the recent protests, we would likely see millions of Iranians show up and support the anti-regime movement. 
It is important to understand that the crowd that gathered for Soleimani's funeral does not represent the Iranian people at large. Supporters of the regime and those who truly mourn the death of terrorist Soleimani are in the minority. Most of those shown on state television are either paid by the regime, such as the Bazijis, or forced to attend by regime security forces. On Monday, four people were arrested because they expressed their happiness at Soleimani's death on social media, according to Iran International. Since the death of Soleimani, the regime has shut down schools, bazaars, shops and places of business and public offices and forced people to attend the funeral. It bust school children to the funeral and even forced them to cry for the TV cameras. The regime also ordered all traffic to be directed to the location of the funeral so that even those who didn't want to participate had no choice but to join the crowd. It stopped all subways and trains and forced riders to leave the stations and join the crowd in the streets. The funeral was just a big show orchestrated by the Iranian regime to make it appear that Soleimani was beloved by the Iranian people and that they went uh, they want revenge for his death, which is not what we're hearing from firsthand sources and Persian news sources. We know from our time in Iran that the regime uses threats and force to make people attend ceremonies like this to show massive support for the government. In school, our principals forced us to say death to America and death to Israel every day before classes and to attend speeches whenever the president or other government authorities came to our city. And we would be expelled if we didn't attend. The same was true for high school and university students. In general, if people do not attend such gatherings, they will lose their jobs, public benefits, and even risk their lives and security. Meanwhile, much of the Western media seem to be partnering with the Iranian government in spreading the propaganda that there is massive popular support for the regime. Western media focused on the huge crowds mourning the death of Soleimani and tried to show that people in Iran are angry about the death and want revenge. The reality is that most Iranians love the United States and Americans and would like to establish a friendly relationship with Israel and the U.S. and live in peace with other nations. Iran has been captured by this hostile regime and the mullahs, religious leaders, for more than 40 years. Many Iranians who have been suppressed by the regime have shown through their protests that they oppose the regime and want to see it replaced. More Iranians, including us, thank President Trump and his administration for standing with the Iranian people and adopting policies that are weakening the regime's power within Iran and in the region. We also thank Trump for putting an end to Soleimani, a monster terrorist, and other terrorist leaders who accompanied him. Again, this was penned um, by Marianne Rostampour and Marzia Amorzea. Um, in a, a piece uh, published by the Daily Signal, Iran sentenced us to death, and they're referring to a literal sentence. They're both evangelical Christians now living abroad. Here's how Iranians really view the regime. Well, the shooting carried out by a Saudi aviation student at Naval Air Station Pensacola in, in December was an act of terrorism. So says Attorney General William Barr on Monday as officials released their findings from their investigation into that attack. Barr said the gunman identified as Royal Saudi Air Force 2nd Lieutenant Mohammed Saeed al-Sharmani was motivated by jihadist ideology. His comments uh, came as the U.S. was expelling 21 Saudi nationals living in America who, like al-Sharmani, trained with the U.S. military at facilities, including NAS Pensacola. Senior Justice Department officials say that the 21-year-old shooter left a trail of extremism in the days and weeks Uh, Leading up to the attack during the course of the investigation, we learned that the shooter posted a message on September 11th, 2019, stating the countdown has begun. 
Barr said during the Thanksgiving weekend, he then visited the 9-11 memorial in New York City. He also posted other anti-American, anti-Israeli and jihadi messages on social media, including two hours before his attack. Al-Sharani ultimately killed three U.S. sailors and severely wounded eight other Americans in the December 6th attack, according to Barr. Most of the 21 cadets being expelled had some kind of contact with child pornography, social media containing some jihadi and anti-American content, the American general said. However, there was no evidence of any affiliation or involvement with any terrorist activity or group. Secretary Barr mentioned that the relevant U.S. Attorney's Office uh, offices rather independently reviewed each of the 21 cases involving derogatory information and determined that none of them would, in the normal course, result in federal prosecution. Senior Department of Justice officials uh, said that the expelled cadets were not given a free pass. Yet the secretary uh, added Saudi Arabia determined that this material demonstrated conduct unbecoming an officer in the Royal Saudi Air Force and in Royal Navy. And the 21 cadets have been disenrolled from their training curriculum in the United States military and will be returning to Saudi Arabia later today. A law enforcement source says that earlier today that more than a dozen Saudi nationals who were part of the training program who had ties to extremist groups were to be sent back home. Those individuals were not linked to the Pensacola shooting, though, according to the source. NAS Pensacola is home to the Naval Education and Training Security Assistance Field Activities International Training Center, which Navy officials said was established in 1998, or rather 1988, to meet the aviation-specific training needs of international officers and enlisted students from allied nations. Immersing international students in our U.S. Navy training and culture helps build partnership capacity for both the president and for the future. Commander Bill Gibson, the center's officer in charge, said in 2017, these relationships are truly a win-win for everyone involved. Most of the hundreds of foreign aviation students who have participated in the program were from Saudi Arabia, the naval officials added. The naval training program has had more than 1,500 pilots in total. Well, Saudis have uh, received training at Pensacola since the 1970s, with as many as 20 students from the Middle Eastern country in any given class. Many of the students, often from the royal family, putting pressures on officials to pass uh, pilots through the training program in an attempt to preserve diplomacy with the U.S. ally. Secretary Barr hailed the program, describing the Royal Saudi Air Force as an important military partner, which has long had a training relationship with the United States. The shooting at Naz Pensacola, however, also prompted a group of U.S. Navy instructor pilots to ask top military brass for permission to arm themselves. One of the shooting victims was the captain of the U.S. Naval Academy rifle team, an excellent marksman. It's so stupid that on a military base, the shooter was allowed to roam free for, his, for so long, one instructor pilot said. Uh, two pilots said the Saudi shooter had 10 minutes to carry out his deadly assault on defenseless Navy sailors. Uh, senior law enforcement officials uh, said the attack lasted 15 minutes and al Sharamni. Uh, used a Glock 9mm that had five extended magazines. Officials added that the gun was purchased legally in Florida. A deputy of the Escambria County Sheriff's Office shot and killed uh, that individual. Meanwhile, the FBI sent a letter to Apple's general counsel asking for help to in accessing data from a pair of iPhones owned by the gunman, as the FBI has been unsuccessful at unlocking those phones. But again, the headline uh, simply reads that the NAS Pensacola shooting was, in fact, an act of terrorism, and the U.S. is expelling 
21 Saudi nationals from the training program they too had been enrolled in. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. We'll be back in a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we'll hear from Dr. Steve Wilkins. He's the author of What's So Funny About God? A Theological Look at Humor. Well, House Intelligence Committee Ranking Member Devin Nunez has demanded answers on Saturday from the Intelligence Community Inspector General's Office regarding the whistleblower complaint about the president's 25, July 25 phone call with Ukrainian President Vladimir, or rather, Valdemir Zelensky. Well, Nunez sent a letter to the ICIG Michael Atkinson raising several questions about the complaint, which ultimately led to the impeachment of President Trump and repeated requests for information that he said went unanswered for months. While several officials met for closed-door sessions to answer questions following the complaint, Atkinson's testimony was, uh, has not been released to the public. He's the only one of all the Star Chamber uh, games that were played in the basement of the Capitol with the secretive interviews. The only one that's not released is the one that the ICIG, the Inspector General, uh, gave. That's unacceptable, Nunez said, speaking on Sunday morning's futures. Well, Nunez, along with Representative Jim Jordan and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, previously had sent a letter to Atkinson in September of last year, in which they raised a number of issues related to the whistleblower's complaint. Nunez's uh, new letter claims Atkinson's office has not responded satisfactorily. Among his main concerns, the decision to revise a form for whistleblower complaints that remove the requirement of firsthand information in order for a complaint to be relayed to Congress. His September letter had inquired about the update to the form that had left out the first-hand knowledge requirement and how it had been dated August 2019, despite evidence that it was created in September of 2019. Atkinson's office later claimed that the form had been backdated in error because it had received... um, preliminary approval in August. Now Nunez is asking that if that was the case, why it took until late September for it to be posted alone. While he's claiming it is um, essentially we're just dumb, we made a mistake, it was a huge mistake, Nunez said on Monday. That's fine if you want to claim incompetence, but you need to have the documentation, the evidence to prove that you were indeed incompetent, end quote. Well, the letter asked for the information regarding all revisions to the form since May of 24 of 2018, as well as who approved them and copies of each revised version. Prior to then, the form stated that firsthand knowledge was required. After media reports first noted the form change, Atkinson said in a lengthy statement that the whistleblower had actually filled out the older version of that form, which retained the requirement the whistleblowers have firsthand information. The ICIG uh, revealed that the whistleblower had said he or she had firsthand information as well as secondhand information, but it was unclear what the firsthand information was. The letter also sought the uh, inspector general policies regarding the criteria for making a, credibly, a credibility determination in cases where complaints had been deemed an urgent concern, such as the complaint about the president's call. Nunez says he specifically wanted to know if Atkinson's office changed its assessment of the whistleblower's credibility in light of the incorrect or incomplete information provided. And the Foreign Intelligence uh, Surveillance Court, or uh, well, 
it's not FISA because it ends with a C, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, maybe FISC would be a better way to put it, has stunned court watchers by selecting David Chris. He's a former Obama administration lawyer who has appeared on the Rachel Maddow show and written extensively in support of the FBI's surveillance practices on the left-wing blog Lawfare to oversee the FBI's implementation of reforms in the wake of the condemning Department of Justice Inspector General report last year. The development on Friday, first reported by independent journalist Mike Cernovich, has roiled Republicans who've demanded accountability at the FBI. House Intelligence Committee ranking member Devin Nunez told the Daily Caller that Chris's appointment was shocking and inexplicable. It's hard to imagine a worse person for Fisk uh, could have chosen outside James Comey, Andy McCabe or Adam Schiff, Nunez says, speaking with uh, Sarah Carter, a Fox News contributor, Nunez added, it's a ridiculous choice. The FBI lied to the Fisk and to help make sure that doesn't happen again, the Fisk chose an FBI apologist who denied and defended those lies. The Fisk is, uh, is uh, setting its own credibility on fire. On Sunday morning futures, Nunez reminded anchor Maria Bartiromo that uh, Chris had panned the now vindicated 2018 memo produced by the Nunez panel, which asserted a series of surveillance abuses by the FBI against former Trump aide Carter Page. Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz later substantiated Nunez's claims, noting that the FBI had made numerous materially false representations for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISC. Of all the people in the swamp, this is the guy that you came up with, Nunez asked. The guy that was accusing me of federal crimes, the guy that was defending the dirty cops at the FBI. The court must be trying to abolish itself. There's long-term damage. Well, it goes on from there, but the uh, court has selected this individual, and we'll see if that uh, selection holds. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell Today, tore into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. No big news there. I suppose that's been going back and forth for some time. But this is just days after the uh, Speaker backed down from her refusal to send the articles of impeachment against President Trump to the Senate, calling Pelosi's delay a strange gambit that produced absolutely nothing. During a speech on the Senate floor, McConnell chastised Pelosi for ending what he called her one-woman blockade and questioned her strategy for holding off sending the articles to the Senate. The House in December voted to impeach the president on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress for matters relating to his controversial July phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky and subsequent House inquiry. Pelosi had held up sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate, citing concerns about McConnell's objectivity and the lack of ability to call witnesses to testify in the trial in hopes of winning concession from Congress. Now, it's important to, to remind uh, ourselves that the Constitution requires that um, the uh, House come up with, they investigate, they come up with charges, they make a case, then then present that case to the Senate. Uh, and the Senate hears the case that the House is uh, has presented and then ultimately ultimately makes a decision. There's no crossover in the Constitution as to what the House requires the Senate to do or what the Senate requires the House to do. Uh, so Pelosi, Pelosi rather holding up the articles of impeachment was a rare, if not uh, completely unprecedented uh, action on her part. In a television appearance over the weekend, Pelosi defended the delay, arguing Democrats were successful in making the case to the American people that the Senate trial should include witnesses. What we think we accomplished in the past few weeks is that we wanted the public to see the need for witnesses, Pelosi said during an appearance 
on ABC News this week. Pelosi also warned Sunday that senators will pay a price if they block new witness testimony with a trial that Americans perceive as a cover-up for Trump's actions. Well, she's mainly parroting her own thoughts on the subject. There was no polling about that prior to this latest gambit, so we don't know if there's been any movement at all. But nonetheless, uh, Pelosi said, and with a straight face, it's about a fair trial. The senators who are thinking now about voting for witnesses or not, uh, they will have to be held accountable. She added, now the ball is in their court. Well, it won't be until the articles of impeachment are from are handed from hers to theirs, uh, to either do that or pay a price. Well, McConnell is reluctant to enter a divisive Senate debate over witnesses that could split his party and prolong the trial that's already expected to consume weeks of floor time, much to the chagrin of those who are sitting senators attempting to uh, win the uh, endorsement of the Democrats for their party's nomination. He's seeking a speedy acquittal and has proposed a process similar to the presidential impeachment trial of Bill Clinton in 1999, which would start the proceedings and then vote later on hearing new testimony. One leading Republican, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, has already predicted that the trial would end in a matter of days. Graham and Senator Josh Hawley are leading the effort to dismiss the charges against the president. The Democrat-run House has yet to set the timing for this week's vote to transmit the impeachment articles to the Senate. Pelosi, rather, will meet behind closed doors tomorrow with House Democrats to decide the next steps ahead of the party's presidential primary debate that evening evening the last um, before the Iowa caucuses. Once the Republican-led Senate receives the charges, the trial is expected to begin sooner rather than later. And speaking of the Iowa caucuses, with three weeks to go until Iowa's caucuses kick off the presidential nominating calendar, a new poll in the Hawkeye state shows former Vice President Joe Biden with a slight edge over his top-tier rivals for the Democratic presidential nomination. Biden grabs the support of 24% of likely Iowa Democratic presidential caucus goers in the Monmouth University survey released today, the eve of the next presidential primary debate, which will be held in Des Moines, Iowa. Well, according to the poll, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont stands at 18 percent with former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg at 17 percent and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts at 15 percent. Senator Amy Klobuchar of neighboring Minnesota is at 8 percent in the new survey with billionaire environmental and progressive advocate Tom Steyer and Senator Cory Booker, who has now stepped down from the contest, suspending his campaign uh, at 4 percent. Booker ended his White House bid a couple of hours before the poll was released. The survey shows uh, tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang at 3 percent, Representative Tulsi Gabbard at 2 percent, and everyone else tested at less than 1 percent. Former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg, who's not campaigning in the early voting states and instead is concentrating on the delegate-rich states that hold contests in March and beyond, was not included in that poll. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. And also in the second hour, we'll talk with Dr. Steve Wilkins. What's so funny about God? A theological look, rather, at humor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Dr. Steve Wilkins. He is the uh, author of What's So Funny About God, A Theological Look at Humor. Looking forward to that conversation coming up in our next segment of today's program. I want to remind you that on Friday, we're going to be broadcasting live from Mission Connection Northwest 2020. Yes, it's that time of year again. 
the start of the new year. This year, Mission Connection Northwest will be held at Rolling Hills Community Church that has graciously made its facility available for the body of Christ from all across the fruited plains, at least in the North Pacific Northwest. And you are invited to participate as well. As has always been the case, Mission Connection Northwest is free of charge, but registration Pre-registration is required, so you can go to missionconnection.com, keeping in mind that connection is always spelled with an X, and uh, you can sign up there, uh, let them know you're coming, you can select the workshops you plan to attend, learn more about who the speakers will be for the weekend. It's going to be a great, uh, a great opportunity once again to find encouragement to see what God is doing all around the world, have access to those who are on the front lines of ministry, who are there to help equip and challenge. If you're looking for more refined direction, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to hear from the Lord and to hear from others uh, who are engaged in mission as well. So that's coming up this Friday and Saturday. We'll be broadcasting live from four to six uh, on the Georgine Rice Show. We look forward to that every year. And if you're planning on coming to Mission Connection, you'll find us just inside the door at uh, Rolling Hills Community Church, and you uh, are invited to come by and say hello. Now, just one proviso, if my lips are moving and the mic is in my face, I'm probably on the air, so we'll have to reserve that for the breaks, but I would love to uh, to meet you, to say hello, or to see old favorites, old friends as well. So that's coming up this Friday, and then it, of course, uh, continues through Saturday all day, and uh, we hope that you can plan to be there for that as well. Mission Connection, spelled with an X, missionconnection.com. Be sure to register. A lot of great, great opportunity uh, during that uh, event. We've got over 100 exhibits. We've got uh, all kinds of things going on throughout the day. And again, you can find out more at missionconnection.com. You can also register there, which is required. Mission Connection, as you might recall, is sponsored by Area Churches. Rolling Hills Community Church in their beautiful facility has made it available for the body of Christ and those who are seeking to be better equipped to carry out the Great Commission. But it really reflects uh, a number of area churches. I don't have the number of them uh, right in front of me, but... Uh, This is a reflection of the body of Christ from our area, and it really does um, garner the attention of the world. There are going to be a number of representatives from uh, several countries who are considering similar events to Mission Connection in their area. Uh, We also have people from across the country who will be visiting also considering similar events. We don't realize what a um, what a gem we have in Mission Connection here. It is unique in its structure and presentation, and people are coming from all across the world to uh, to see what we do here and to consider doing similar work where they live. So it's a great gift to us, and I think one of the highlights of the beginning of the new year of the Christian events calendar. So make note, Christian, or I should say Mission Connection Northwest, 2020, this Friday night and Saturday. Go to the website for all the important details. Well, it's been a turbulent last two years at Planned Parenthood with a leadership shakeup involving the ouster of Dr. Leanna Wynn as president and the installment of Alexis McGill Johnson as acting president. But that upheaval didn't stop Planned Parenthood from having a banner year in providing abortion on demand as its new report shows. The report, which was released quietly this past week, states that Planned Parenthood affiliates performed 345,672 abortions from October 1st of 2017 to September 30th of 2018, the highest number of abortions ever reported in a single year. I don't want to just gloss over that and uh, go right past it because we're talking about 345,000. 
1,672 unique individuals in utero who are made in the image of God, whose lives were ended deliberately, facilitated by Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood saw about 2.4 million patients during that time, about the same as last year, but down from 3 million as of as recently as uh, 10 years ago. I don't want to belabor the point and the work that they're doing, but as we approach the anniversary of Roe versus Wade and a season in which those who believe in the sanctity of human life and support that in a variety of ways, uh, it is a reminder that the work is not yet done. Public opinion certainly is turning. The younger generation, I think it's fair to say, is a pro-life generation. Uh, but the report from Planned Parenthood puts into perspective that there's much work to be done. 345,672 abortions by that organization alone. Toby Mack has penned an honest, heartfelt song. It's called 21 Years, and it is an homage to his son, who on his 20, in his 21st year, his life was ended. Well, the Grammy Award-winning artist Toby Mack released the song on Friday last and dedicated it to his uh, late son, Truett Foster McKeon, titled 21 Years. The song, as uh, his father put it, is an honest letter from the artist to his 21-year-old firstborn who died unexpectedly at his home in October of last year. Toby Mack announced the song both on Instagram and Twitter. The last couple of months, he wrote, have been the hardest I've ever faced. Thank you for the love and support. Part of my process has always been to write about the things I'm going through, but this went to a whole new level. What started out as getting some of my thoughts and feelings about losing my firstborn son down on paper ended up a song, he wrote on Instagram. And although he admits he never admits rather, he never wanted to pen such a song, the Christian pioneer hopes the new single will help others who are also grieving a loss. He tweeted, 21 years is a song I wrote about the recent passing of my firstborn son, Truett Foster McKeon. I loved him with all my heart. Until something in life hits you this hard, you never know how you will handle it. The McKeon family has been surrounded by people who've been helping them through this tragic loss, and the artist says he is grateful. Writing this song felt like an honest confession of the question, questions, pain, anger, doubt, mercy, and promise that describes the journey I'm probably only beginning. The rest is yet to come. One thing I know is that I am not alone. God didn't promise us a life of no pain or even tragic death. But he did promise he would never leave us or forsake us. And I'm holding dearly to that promise for my son as well as myself. He went on to say some of the emotional words of 21 years says, why would you give and then take him away? Suddenly end. Could you not let it fade? What I would give for a couple of days. Well, the cause of the 21 year old's death has not yet been released. What is known is that on October 23rd, the Nashville Fire Department responded to an emergency call to his home for a person suffering cardiac arrest. Upon hearing the tragic news, Toby Mack, who was on tour in Canada, flew back home from uh, rather to Franklin, Tennessee, to be with his wife and their four children. The family has since launched the Truett Foster Foundation, where donations made in Truett's name will help send vulnerable youth to college that they may realize their God-given potential to change the lives of others, according to the foundation's website. 100% of the donations will be used to fund scholarships in partnership with the Global Orphan Project. The Christian organization will underwrite all general and administrative expenses in honor of the aspiring musician. 
Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Steve Wilkins. What's so funny about God? A theological look at humor. Looking forward to that conversation. Also want to let you know that the snowpocalypse that we've all been lamenting could happen. Uh, well, may not happen quite the way we've been led to believe. They say that we may have some uh, snow overnight mixed with rain, but not likely to have much. If you're above um, or below, f- yeah, above 500 uh, feet level, you might see a little snow, but not not much. All right, coming up, Steve Wilkins, Dr. Wilkins, What's So Funny About God? A Theological Look at Humor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this, well, it's a fine Monday morning, afternoon, evening, whatever. Well, if you don't believe God has a sense of humor, just look in the mirror. We've all heard that joke. Well, my next guest points out that humor is a truly human phenomenon. It crosses history, culture, and every stage of life. Jokes often touch on the biggest topics of our existence. And although it may seem simple on the surface, humor depends on the use of our highest faculties, language, intelligence, sympathy, sociability. Well, to the philosopher Steve Wilkins, my next guest, these facts about humor are evidence that God just has to be in there somewhere. Yet many Christians, scholars, lay people, you know, folks like us, haven't taken humor seriously. In What's So Funny About God, he launches an exploration of the connection between humor and many of the central topics of Christian theology. And he argues that viewing scripture and theology through the lens of humor brings fresh insight to our understanding of the gospel, helps us avoid the pitfalls of both naturalism and Gnosticism, and facilitates a humble, honest, and appealing approach to faith. He turns this lens on the paradoxes of human nature, the Christian calendar, church life, and new readings of well-known biblical texts, including the book of Esther, the nativity narratives, and Jesus' own teachings. Taking into account the problems of suffering and the need for timely lament, he portrays the Christian story as one that ultimately ends in cosmic comedy, full of wit and thoughtful jokes throughout. It's enough fun that you may realize... You may not realize you're reading theology. Well, Dr. Steve Wilkins, and yes, that's a Ph.D., is professor of philosophy and ethics at Azusa Pacific University. His books include Hidden Worldviews, Faith and Reason, Three Views of Christian, uh, of uh, Three Views, rather, Christianity and Western Thought, and uh, Beyond Bumper Sticker Ethics. He's also taught as an adjunct faculty member at Mount San Antonio College, Glendale Community College, Fuller Theological Seminary, and Azusa Pacific University a C.P. Haggins Graduate School of Theology. Again, he joins us today to talk about his latest book, What's So Funny About God? A Theology, A Theological Look at Humor. Dr. Wilkins, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate this invitation to visit with you. Well, this may seem like an unlikely subject uh, to talk about humor in light of what the Scriptures teach, and certainly in the uh, broad category of theology. Let's start where you began, and that is, so why a book on humor and God and theology? Okay, well, the answer is pretty simple. Um, I love God, and I love humor. And so I wanted the two objects of my affection to love each other. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to see what the theologians have to say about humor. And they don't have much to say about it. And when they do talk about it, um, a lot of times it's negative. And I thought that was unfortunate. 
So you undertook to, to help us have a clear understanding of what's already there in Scripture. And what's the value of us coming to an appreciation of elements of humor as we're reading about the, the Christian faith? We're looking at uh, the history of the faith and the nature of God. What, what do we benefit by uh, in taking a look at what's, uh, what you would argue, and I think rightly so, is already there? Okay, well, uh, the first thing I, I start with is the triggers that make humor happen. Now, you always have to be careful when you analyze humor, because as soon as you do that, you kill it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, it works with certain things like paradox and surprise, misdirection, uh, reversal. And you start reading your Bible, you're going to see those things all over the place. God's always choosing the least likely. I mean, uh, we just we just finished celebrating Christmas, the Incarnation. And if you like irony, and I do, uh, it is kind of ironic that the experts who had been looking for a Messiah for centuries totally missed Christmas. And instead, the ones who got it were the ones who were kind of on the margins of society, the ones who uh, were on the edge of things. And so God comes in a very unexpected way. He comes as a baby. You didn't want to see that one coming, did you? Hmm. You write that this is an adverbial approach to faith and humor, referring to your book, What's So Funny About God. What do you mean by that, that this is an adverbial approach? Yeah, that we ought to keep those those uh, triggers of humor in the back of our minds when we're reading Scripture and expect the unexpected, expect a few surprises. Um, sometimes we get on our fellow Christians for not reading the Bible to, uh, enough, but it could be there's a way in which we've read it too much in that we already know how the story ends, and we don't see how surprising it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you think about one of our patriarchs, Jacob. He's a gimpy swindler. Uh, you think of David. Uh, he was seen as so unlikely as king material that his brothers and his dad just left him out in the fields with the critters. And God always seems to be choosing the least likely. Um, I mean, if if you like humor think about it, uh, Saul, the persecutor of the church, the super Jew, is tapped by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, that's a pretty amazing reversal there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) What you're talking about are incongruities and surprises that share common ground with humor, as you write in What's So Funny About God. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, incongruity happens when you have two things coming into a collision course with each other and they don't quite seem to be compatible. And so um, one of my test jokes to to demonstrate this is if I would say the line, um, you know, when I die, I want to go quietly in my sleep like my grandpa. From there, we start to write a script. We start to tell a story, and we remember all of those awful situations where somebody went through a prolonged and painful death. It was not only painful to... Uh, the person who was in that process, but everybody around him. Okay, so that's the setup line. But then the punchline throws things into reverse. So when I die, I want to go quietly in my sleep like like my grandpa, not yelling and screaming like the other people in his car. Okay, now that's a bit dark. (laughs) But you have a collision of two different stories there. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, uh, you have the collision of of God becoming a baby. Those two things don't seem to fit together. You have the collision of ourselves where we are body and soul. 
And so in so many ways, we are animals, but we only know we're animals because we're more than animals. And so, again, you get that that collision that we feel in our very existence. You make the point in your introduction that it's hard to define humor itself, but instead of attempting to define it, it seems more helpful to focus on how it works. I think some sometimes we struggle with what does what is what is humor? How do we define it? Uh, but again, you point out that there are a number of, uh, of ways that we can understand how it works. Yeah, yeah, and so there's some of those things that I, I've mentioned. Yes. Surprise. Um, you know, babies start to laugh at a very early age, two to four months, uh, but they're not going to laugh at elephant jokes, uh, but they will laugh if you surprise them. So, you know, you make a silly noise or you throw them in the air and they'll laugh provided that you catch them. Uh, and then peekaboo. And so, um, you know, we laugh at surprise. We laugh at redefinition. One of my favorite redefinitions is a sweater. It's a garment worn by a child when its mother gets cold. <laughs> that's absolutely true. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, and that's one of the beautiful things about humor, too, is it's funny, but it also allows us to see something very mundane and ordinary in a different way. You write that the flip side of adverbial uh, methodology, which you've just been describing, is what you uh, uh, talk about in really the secondary motif within the book. Uh, you raise the question of what it might mean to think about humor theologically. And again, that might seem incongruous to some of our listeners to think about theology and humor in the same uh, look. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, here's another element that got me into this investigation. And that is that humor is one of my primary love languages. I mean, I, I tell my wife and my kids I love them a lot. But I don't always use those three words. Sometimes my I love you comes in the form of saying, hey, look at this great video I found on YouTube. Or let me tell you about what happened in class today. And so, uh, you know, I inflict upon them the dreaded dad humor <laughs> as, as a way of expressing love. And, um, you know, people who have a sense of humor are judged to be much more warm and caring. And if you go on Match.com, the number one trait that women seek in a man is a sense of humor. And for men who are looking for women, that's number three. Um, so humor is a way of drawing people together. And, you know, what, what do we do when we walk by two people who are just laughing uproariously. Well, the first question is, well, what's so funny? Mm -hmm. And you hope they're not laughing at you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is occasionally the case. We're going to yeah. continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Steve Wilkins, and yes, that's PhD. Uh, he is the author of What's So Funny About God, a theology, uh, a theological, I'm going to get this right before our time is over, a theological look at humor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Steve Wilkins. He's the author of What's So Funny About God? A Theological Look at Humor. 
Yes, I got it right. Uh, the book is published by InterVarsity Press, and it really takes a serious look at humor in the scriptures and might even help us to present our relationship with Christ and our walk with him in a way that's a bit more comely. Now, he writes that the aim of these musings, referring to the book, about humor's relationship to Christianity is not to create a happy-faced church that is more fun than our usual offerings, an alternative to the comedy club without the two-drink minimum, not to say that some congregations couldn't make things a tad more interesting. Some churches feel like a hostage situation in which they hope the captives will hang around long enough that Stockholm Syndrome will kick in and they'll eventually join the cause. Instead, I view interpreting faith humorously as a way, one way of thinking about who we are and who God is. Why do you think we're so loath to um, take humor seriously and to uh, recognize it when we find it plainly in Scripture? Well, I, I think the biggest obstacle obstacle is obviously the fact that uh, some people see humor and seriousness as opposites. Mm -hmm. And uh, we certainly want to take God seriously. Um, And so a lot of people say, well, if that's true, if I'm going to take God seriously, then I'll save my humor for outside of the church doors or outside of my own spiritual uh, processes. But yet... um, when we uh, when we think about the things that jokes are made about, they are some of the most serious things in our life. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it: love, marriage, death, God, sex, children, politics. All of those are pretty big topics, and they're they're a rich resource for humor. And so that's one way that we say, "Hey, you know, this is serious." And one of the beautiful things about humor, and you kind of alluded to it is quite often it will diffuse sometimes difficult issues and topics and allow us to laugh together. Which we so often uh, need to do. Um, you uh, point out that you're convinced that one of the most potent ways to of expressing, understanding, and deepening faith is woefully underutilized, referring, of course, to humor. Too often, humor has been sidelined, even discouraged, as a means of exploring, learning about, or growing in faith. When we think about God, where do we find God's sense of humor? You mentioned some examples just a few moments ago uh, around us and in Scripture. And uh, how does he intend to um, for us to better understand him, our situation and ourselves when we recognize those places in uh, in Scripture where there is humor injected in what may be a very serious uh, set of circumstances? Yeah, well, uh, a lot of it is just to read Scripture with a new openness to where God does something unexpected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we take as the normal state of affairs gets flipped on its head. And so, um, you know, we get some rather humorous episodes in the Bible, such as Elijah and the 400 uh, uh, prophets of Baal. And you have this big contest where, you know, they're trying to call down fire and, and you've got 450 of those priests out there chanting and singing, and Elijah is, is mocking them <laughs> in, a, in a rather crude way, by the way, too. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, what, what's your God doing? Is he taking care of his uh, morning duties? Um, and so, so you get situations like that. Um, idolatry is serious stuff, but one of the places where we see the most potent forms of mockery is when Paul mocks death in 1 Corinthians 15, and says, you know, the mortal will put on immortality, and then death will die. And so 
he laughs at death. And so, you know, we, we see the reversal because we feel mortality in every bone of our body. <laughs> and as I get older, I feel it more every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it used to be, how long is it going to take for this to heal? And now it's, is this going to heal? <laughs> yeah, how, how painful is this going to get? And I, I, I know where this is going, but there's another story that intrudes. It's God's gracious punchline in which death doesn't get the last word. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the book, What's So Funny About God? A Theological Look at Humor. Um, what, what does this book and your um, effort to help all of us recognize humor where we find it in Scripture, how does that contribute to theology, uh, again, and our understanding of, of God? Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's trying to put on a fresh set of lenses. In many ways, I think, you know, we, uh, we forget that Christianity is as much as about seeing as it is about doing. So how do we see the world, and how do we see God at work in the world? And so there are all of these little hints in everyday life. If we look carefully, uh, we have what I call divine superpowers, because we can see invisible things. We can see truth. We can see beauty. We can see good. And none of those things has physical characteristics in and of themselves. Physical things can be good or beautiful, uh, but goodness and beauty goes beyond that. But yet we can see those things if we have eyes to see. Mm, I like that. Uh, as I introduced you earlier in the program, you are Dr. Steve Wilkins. You hold a Ph.D. from Fuller Theological Seminary. You're a professor of philosophy and ethics, no less, at Azusa Pacific. You've been an adjunct professor uh, on many campuses across the uh, the country. You're the author of a number of uh, serious books. How does this book, uh, What's So Funny About God, how does that relate to the body of your scholarly work? And I don't think it's a departure from it, but it might be a challenge for our listeners to see how is this consistent with um, the sort of heady writing and thinking that you have done elsewhere? Yeah, in some ways it is a a step aside, but at the same time, uh, philosophy strives to look at things in in a new way and see things that aren't there because it recognizes that this world is just a very strange place. Hmm. I mean, uh, right now, the two of us are traveling at 67,000 miles an hour through space. That doesn't seem very likely, does it? It does not, and we don't and, have a seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So whenever my wife says, why don't you get out of that recliner and do something? I just say, <laughs> you know, I am moving right now at 100 times the speed of sound. That sounds like I'm doing something. Um, and, you know, the fact that the most holy elements uh, in our worship – you know, the bread and the wine. Um, Those are very common foods. There's nothing unusual about them. Uh, You know, it's just enhanced water and perhaps the most uh, uh, widespread food there is in the world, bread. But yet it nourishes us not just physically, but spiritually. And so God is there in the most common of all things. Again, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. I understand you're planning a second book in which humor becomes the vehicle through which to encourage um, and uh, refresh our perspective on the Christian life. Yeah, it's still very much in the early stages. But um, one of the things that motivated me on that is um, in the uh, Westminster Catechism, the first question is, 
what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. And somewhere we seem to be missing the enjoyment part. Mm. And if a bunch of crusty old Scottish Puritans can talk about enjoying God, I think most of us Christians ought to be able to get on board with that. Absolutely. You know, as I read what's so funny about God, it makes me think a little bit differently about heaven. It's not just going to be a somber place where each one uh, conducts himself or herself in a way that's consistent with the new life that we've been given. But there's going to be a joy that's going to be expressed in ways that are more jovial than perhaps I had thought before. Um, And I appreciate your book sort of broadening my horizon, if you will, when I think about the life that's to come. Oh, that's that's it always warms my heart to hear (laughs) that, uh, you know, somebody has read this and they say, oh, I see that differently now. Yeah, yeah. But but yeah, uh, Revelation ends with a feast and a wedding feast. Those were not somber affairs. No, it's not a memorial service. It's a celebration. No, it's the biggest happy meal of all. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I love the book, What's So Funny About God? A Theological Look at Humor. Dr. Wilkins, thank you for departing from some of your other theological work to uh, turn our attention toward the theology of humor, which I think we'll find in Scripture and look forward to the uh, the next uh, iteration of the subject. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's been fun. Real pleasure. By the way, the book is published by InterVarsity Press. Again, Dr. Steve Wilkins, the author, What's So Funny About God? A Theological Look at Humor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this Friday, we're going to broadcast live from Mission Connection Northwest at Rolling Hills Community Church. Rolling Hills has graciously made their facility available to the body of Christ. Mission Connection, as you probably know, is an offering from a number of churches in the Portland metro area who invite us to come together around the subject of mission. That's going to be this Friday evening and Saturday all day. I have the opportunity to help MC along with Bill McLeod. So I'm looking forward to a great weekend. And we're going to be broadcasting as I mentioned, from Mission Connection uh, on Friday from the uh, lobby of Rolling Hills Community Church. If you happen to be there, please stop by. Now, if the mic is in my face and my lips are moving, I can't speak to you right then. But during the breaks, I'd love to just say hello and uh, welcome you to Mission Connection. Uh, This year, the theme is One Body, One Voice, One Mission. There is unity in Christ. We don't always reflect that as well as we ought uh, but it is a fact of um, of heaven, if you will. At uh, this year's Mission Connection, we're looking forward to hearing from uh, Dr. Stephen Yoon. He grew up in South Korea. He and his wife, Joy, have been residents and Christian cross-cultural workers in North Korea for over a decade. Dr. Stephen leads a team of local physicians while treating pediatric patients in developmental disabilities in Pyongyang Medical School Hospital. He and his wife and family live in North Korea. He's going to be one of the plenary speakers. I'm looking forward uh, to hearing him. In fact, he was in the area a couple of months ago, and there was a small gathering to which he spoke, and I had the opportunity to listen. You're in for a real treat with Dr. Stephen Yoon. Uh, We're also going to hear from Michael Badriaki. In fact, I think I interviewed him last year. It's just one of our short 
uh, conversations while at Mission Connection. He's one of the plenary speakers this year. He's from Uganda. Very impressive uh, gentleman with experience serving globally and evangelism, uh, evangelization, education, holistic missions, global health, leadership development. He does it all. He's also the author, When Helping Works, Alleviating Fear and Pain in Global Missions. He serves as the uh, president of the Global Leadership Community. He's a professor at Lancaster Bible College. He was just here in uh, last year at uh, George Fox. He's now in Pennsylvania where he lives uh, with his wife and their daughter. He's going to be a plenary speaker as well. When Helping Works is the title of his book. Becky Pippert might be a name that's familiar to you. She's the author of 11 books. She's also the founder of Becky Pippert Ministries, a global evangelism ministry. She and her husband uh, have ministered extensively. Um, on all six continents, most recently living in the UK and Europe. She's the best-selling author of the book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, one of the definitive guides to personal evangelism. She began her ministry right here in Portland on staff with InterVarsity Press, or rather InterVarsity at Reed College. She's going to be one of the plenary speakers. And finally, Dick Brodkin, he and his wife, Jennifer, they've served among Muslims for the last two years and and a half, uh, I should say, two and a half decades. They helped uh, found uh, Live Dead Movement. He is the author of Loving Muslims, The Live Dead Joy, uh, The Gospel, Abiding in Jesus, Abiding Mission, and the editor of several other books, Uh, All of these books are available on Amazon, by the way, and um, many of them will be available at Mission Connection. He has a Ph.D. in intercultural studies. He and his wife have uh, two sons. He's going to be our final speaker at Mission Connection Northwest this Saturday evening. Now, if you haven't yet registered, I would encourage you to do that. This event is free, but you must pre-register. You can go to missionconnection.com, and Connection, of course, is spelled with an X, missionconnection.com. They're going to feature, as has been the case for many years now, 100 workshops, over 100 exhibits and resources, uh, and again, registration online is required, although admission is free. Uh, There's going to be time of worship and fellowship. Lunch and dinner are provided upon request. Uh, You can go to the website and find out all the important details about who's there, when, and what the workshops will be and how to sign up for them. But that's coming up this Friday and Saturday. Now, it looks like the harsh weather that we had been told to anticipate is not coming our way, at least here in ground level in the the Portland metro area. Uh, So if you're thinking about um, or concerned about the weather, He probably shouldn't be, but that's coming up this Friday and Saturday. We're praying for uh, great access from wherever you happen to be coming from to make it to this um, wonderful event held once a year here in the Portland area. And I should mention there are uh, organizations from all across the country who are coming to Mission Connection Northwest uh, to consider doing similar events in their areas, as well as a couple of countries uh, around the world who are also coming to Portland Uh, to observe Mission Connection with a view to doing something similar in their area. So it's pretty exciting. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Ilya Fotiskyov, author of Terror in the Cradle of Liberty, How Boston Became a Center for Islamic Extremism. On Wednesday, we'll talk with uh, Dr. John Schneider. He's executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. Uh, We're also going to talk with uh, Dr. Badriaki. He'll be my guest. On Thursday, Beth and David Borum, they're the authors of When Faith Becomes Sight, Opening Your Eyes to God's Presence All Around You. Their book is published by InterVarsity. And then, of course, on Friday, we'll be broadcasting live from Mission Connection Northwest 2020 at uh, Rolling Hills Community Church. We'll be talking with some of the presenters 
for that event uh, in the workshops and so on throughout the day. So I hope you can join us there on site. If not, we'll give you a little taste of Mission Connection on Friday during the program. While we're out of time, want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.